In times of chaos and breakdown, where might we turn for guidance? To the myths, the storytellers, the wisdom keepers and the rabble-rousers. To the ones braving the seas of uncertainty, not with answers, but with poetry, beauty, and well-crafted questions. I'm Ian McKenzie, co-founder of the School of Mythopoetics, a place to gather with like-hearted folks to navigate the mysteries together. And this is The Crow's Nest, where I speak with an array of guests who are employing their mythic imagination to engage with the tempest of the times. You're invited to join me live on YouTube each week. Visit schoolofmythopoetics.com slash podcast to learn more. And now, enjoy our conversation. Greetings, friends. Greetings to all of you. My name is Ian McKenzie. Uh, and I'm the host of this my, uh, weekly show, The Crow's Nest, where we look at uh, topical events through a mythic lens and um, really wherever we tend to go. And uh, I'm delighted for this conversation to actually be joined by two guests who are actually in the same location, which is a rarity, uh, to jump into their uh, new book called Reckoning. And uh, before I invite them on, I'm going to share a little bit of, from their biographical uh, well, from their bios, and um, maybe offer a little bit of my own relationship to certainly one of which I've um, managed to uh, attend the schooling of for a number of years now. And so, Stephen Jenkinson is a spiritual activist, author, ceremonialist, and farmer. Stephen teaches internationally and is the creator and principal instructor of the Orphan Wisdom School, founded in 2010. With master's degrees from Harvard University in theology and the University of Toronto in social work, he is the author of several books, including the award-winning Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, and A Generation's Worth. Stephen is the subject of the National Film Board of Canada feature-length film, Grief Walker, uh, and the subject of a few shorts that I've done myself uh, with Steve over the years, including The Lost Nation Road about the uh, live show with Gregory Hoskins. And Kimberly Ann Johnson is a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, birth doula, and single mom. She specializes in helping women prepare for birth, recover from birth injuries and birth trauma, and heal from sexual trauma. She's the founder of Megamama.com, an international holistic women's healthcare resource for expectant and new mothers. And she's the author of The Fourth Trimester and Call of the Wild, alongside, of course, uh, this very book, uh, Reckoning. And so, welcome both to you, Kimberly and Stephen. Thank you. Hi, Ian. Thank you. So what it is a rare event to have uh, you both together um, here. Very on the rare. Orphan, it's the first time, the actually. For... Farm. Oh, really? First time? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I uh, understand it. it's the middle of the school. It's happening now, of which I myself was you know, my cohort about a month ago now, which seems uh, oddly far away, but also so present. And um, yeah, I wonder, Kimberly, if you could share a little what, what what's happening here in the school at this moment that you've taken a, a breath away, I think, from. Well, both of you have. Yeah, this morning we had class, and you're wanting to know a little bit of what the class was about. Oh, just uh, what it's like to take a breather and to do something like this in the midst of the wonderings of which I know myself, you know, over the years of how it can maybe feel a bit of whiplash to to step out. Yeah, well, I've been in Stephen Jenkinson's orbit for about a year now, so the tenor of most of my life feels like I'm running on two tracks. And mm -hmm. so this is just a continuation of that to be 
feeling like I'm molding clay at the same time as I am, you know, serving the book and serving the people mm -hmm. who will maybe read the book. Mm -hmm. Well, let me start with the title then, because uh, I know uh, there's a deep love of words and words matter uh, in the school and certainly the title Reckoning. And uh, I would love to hear uh, maybe from either of you first, what is being reckoned with in this book? Okay, uh, let's see. From my end, my participation in it was, um, I was very, and remain very troubled by the allegations of, uh, by the approximations of justice that seem to permeate the, if we can call it the general discourse. Mm. And I've never really centered these things out as a particular area of concern for myself, largely in anticipation that maybe they'd just go away quietly on their own without any, without any broom from me, but Quite the contrary, they're gaining in popularity, momentum, and consequence. Mm. So I think that the, the, that combined with, uh, you know, obviously we're not of the same uh, generation, and I was really mindful in an in an engaged way um, what my little contribution to the fray could possibly be for people of Kimberly's generation and and her children's generation too. Mm. I, I was. I was kind of, my concern was bifurcated across the, that scale and that span. So, so I, I, I put my oar in the water on behalf of, um, you know, anybody younger than me for a change. Generally speaking, I've taken sort of dead aim at people of my generation or, or so, and, you know, asked more of them than is common. And this, uh, I asked more on account of people younger than me for a change. That's, that's, that's my reckoning. For me, I was surprised. I picked up my first book, the fourth trimester the other day. And on the first page, I say the word reckoning twice. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that really surprised me because I didn't realize I had such a relationship with the word and that it meant so many things to me. But for this project, it means sobriety with a lot of uh, principles and words that have come to be standing in for goodness or standing in to be the right side of things or standing in for someone who's spiritually conscious and the reckoning and in my case, reconsideration of those things. And some examples are regret uh, openness, um, obligation, uh, words that always had a negative, well, either an, a strong negative connotation or a strong positive connotation. And, you know, this whole book came about for me, the, the initial, con it's a conversation book, a dialogue book, because of uh, almost like what we well we just had right before we got on Stephen Jenkinson told me I'm in his house for the first time and that there used to be a wall in a place and there's no longer a wall and one time I had friends who had a duplex and one side of the duplex was an office and the other side was their house 
And one day I walked in and there was what a place that you could never pass through before you could pass through. And I felt like I had just walked into an Escher painting because mm -hmm. it was, it seemed completely impossible that that would, I, I couldn't even fathom that, that those things were connected in that way. And so my encounter with, let's say this way of looking at the world or this um, assignment of what it means to be North American right now and to not, um, you know, I thought I was a pretty responsible spiritual devotee. I didn't think that I was um, somebody who recklessly appropriated things or, or took without giving, but uh, through the pandemic and realizing that the quote unquote communities that and I use that word now because I don't think there really were communities, but even the word community, uh, realizing what the underpinnings of that was and how I was a part of it really had to come apart and is coming apart. And I'm still in that undoing process. And so the reckoning for me was reckoning with those worlds that I'm a part of. And uh, instead of someone telling me that, you know, I matter and that what I do is, is like important and I can make a change and, you know, just keep believing uh, to be met differently for me was a reckoning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's this uh, quality in the book uh, as well. And I think also what you're speaking to of, uh, in a sense, um, a willingness to encounter intergenerationally in a way that again maybe seems uncommon like the the willingness to um maybe speak uh, honestly maybe it's the word that's coming to you right now but but yeah a kind of um a, a kind of raw willingness to speak on things and and what wasn't done i mean steve you've spoken about spirit work being like the necessary task right of each generation and by not doing so the spirit work accrues you know to the next generations and I'm thinking as well, there's a story about that woman, I think it was in Mexico, right? The young girl who, who ended up asking you what you did. And this is a couple of years ago now, right? But basically you said, this is right when you're writing Come of Age. And she said, um, you know, uh, something along the lines of, you know, we got it now. Like we got the, the I guess the leadership I, or the, or the I elder. I know what happened right? to people of your generation. Uh, you don't have the wisdom anymore. We've got it now, basically is what she said, yeah. Yeah. And that there's something in that, like I could see that as one way of essentially that, that poverty or that heartbreak showing up, right? Of this unwillingness or this, the younger's looking up and saying like, where were you guys? You know, you haven't been here. Uh, and then I see in this conversation, some kind of um, uh, generative wrecked on schedulness that is made visible through this encounter. And, and that's what I see in this, uh, in this conversation and what's captured here in this book is, yeah, the willingness to have that encounter publicly in a sense that it's, you know, now we can read it and, we can speak to it and that that seems rare that that kind of generational encounter can happen in a way that isn't grievance right but it's actually a, a sort of faithful uh willingness to to grapple with yeah how do we come to be with this way and how might these generations actually um maybe not see each other as enemies in a sense right but um somehow heartbroken together well you know i think i think the notion of candor is it works better in the circumstance you described mm. than, quote, honesty. Candor mm. is uh, a willingness to, 
to engage in a kind of um, stru structured or disciplined inquiry that has genuine consequence and that you fess up to that before anything ensues. I think that's what we under and still do undertake actually, mm. even in a format like this. And I learned that, thank God, in the death trade, you know, sitting beside people who are dying. There's not a lot of room to be an idiot. There's plenty of opportunity, but there's not much in the way of um, merit to frigging around and to obfuscating and to speak in half measures and uh, and to at least do no harm. And, and that, I mean, how do you, how do you, behave as if a person of genuine substance is sitting right beside you as she is now. How do you do it? And the answer is you, you have regard for the substance and you engage it. You don't under function just in case the substance turns out to be spun glass, you know? And so and, and in terms of the assumption that somehow because we're of different generations, there's an inherent likelihood of hostility or remoteness or some problem to be overcome. I mean, I think that only comes from the understanding that that we have to somehow have a joint understanding of anything in order to be able to talk together. Mm. That the fundament has to be shared. I think the, the the fundamental sharing between us is a willingness to hold the other person in genuine regard and treat them like a grown up and proceed accordingly and translate that. Mm. So that's something to be proud of. Mm -hmm. especially these days where under-functioning is the order of the day, it's mistaken for respect. Mm. Kimberly, did you want to speak to that before I, I kind of offer something actually of your words in the opening? Well, I think that, you know, it's all... there's just an accepted vocabulary these days. There's words that stand in for meanings and a lot of, a lot of talk about acceptance and inclusion and, and, and words that are supposed to just that word is supposed to mean that you do that thing. Mm. Mm. And what was, heartening about this project and encounter for me, the ongoing encounter is that somehow, you know, it's very tempting. I mean, you've been at Orphan Wisdom School, Ian, so you know, there's a lot of people that talk like Stephen Jenkinson. And in fact, and at first I was like, I don't know if I want to do this because I don't want to talk, like, I don't want to be in the lingo and the jargon and have to talk like this and do this thing to be a part of it. That was kind of my hesitance, one of them. And, you know, it, it's, it's really hard to translate these ideas into a world that doesn't have these same kind of considerations or expectations for dialogue. So I think in a way, that's what I came to be a proxy for is how do I value this way of being, thinking, respecting, and then come back into a world where those aren't, that's not the the ground I'm walking on, and it's not even what most people understand. And how can I uh, be real? People are so impressed by my vulnerability, and and I, I'm like, 
I mean, I, I don't, the expectation is that because I've written a couple of books and because I guess my website looks professional that somehow I wouldn't subject myself to the same kind of um, rigor or, uh, I mean, authenticity is such an overwrought word now, but just a, a realness with, uh, with how troubled that I am about the world I'm in and being a parent in this time and to have somebody who can, who's already considered a lot of those things and, and clearly um, has landed in some kind of a place with it. So these kind of interactions are uh, like with, with you, with a third person, they're also interesting because the default is for me to try to be a professional, right? And for me, like, I'm, I'm smart, so I could learn the language and I could give you the response that's like, you know, the, the confident response, but that's really disingenuous to where I am because as you read in, in my piece in the book, it's really still just filled with questions. It's not really filled with arrival spaces. I didn't, I didn't come to this school and then, you know, learn how to shear sheep and I'm not like weaving <laughs> on my loom back at home. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, mm -hmm. but even when I say that now that does somewhere in me is like, oh, but that my life would be better if I did that. Or, mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I did this other thing. So, um, for me, this whole idea that we can be reduced to what we look like and then assumptions based on the words that we use is, is really, that's the, that's the peephole into the thing that I'm trying to spread back open. Mm. You know what's happened, Ian. You know what's happened is, is vulnerability in heavy quotation marks has become the secret strength, mm. isn't it? Yeah. It's not. It's not a real vulnerability. It's a staged and crafted one, in which you go through the motions of exposure to things you're not absolutely either comfortable with or, or that you don't function in the context of officialdom with, mm. and. The thing that works about this is that it's not over and it's, it doesn't have a goal and it's not trying to get over something so that we can uh, somehow represent somebody else. I mean, I don't think either one of us is sitting here as generational spokespeople, not in the least. And I don't think the, I would say it differently, the lion's share of our concerns don't happen to follow along the standard generational or even gender driven lines. I don't think mm. there's, there's other kinds of allegiances that, that each of us in our fashion have that are um, not secret strengths. Mm. Hmm. Well, you speak about yeah, performative vulnerability, I suppose. And, you know, somewhere in there for me conjures the, epitome of that which is like a instagram post of yourself weeping <laughs> to show that to show that you're so vulnerable that you would weep on social media but of course Not the other happen. side of you is, yeah well, <laughs> i've just seen a few, a few of those quite a few of those uh kimberly i want to go back to to a point you made uh around sort of encountering mm -hmm. the orphan wisdom school and uh you know the the grappling with steve's take on things and trying to make sense of it and i'll just offer a little motif which is um if you've ever seen that tv series home improvement you know, Tim Allen, I think back in the day, it might even be old enough now that some folks don't remember it, but he had his uh, next door neighbor, right? The 
peek over the fence and he would like the enlightened kind of neighbor. And Tim would always go up to him, right? And, you know, grapple with whatever was happening. <laughs> and then Wilson would deliver that line or two that just captured exactly the wisdom of the moment. And then he'd always try to come back and offer it up kind of half-baked, right? To his kids or to his wife. And they'd say, what, what are you on about? In some ways, I feel that's too early. Um, those scholars in the school that kind of come with, whoa, this is what Steve said about this. And and again, if it's if it's not quite living, then it comes across as it's not it's not yet translatable. And I say for myself, I've grappled with that for many years and and how it shows up in in a way that seems more maybe alive or true to me is in in other things, right? Certainly my crafts or my films and things like that. So that work of translating, I feel, I yeah, that, there's always a time lag in that. Definitely. But there's so much desperation and heartbreak that's informing the desire to be mm -hmm. a different way that that's mm -hmm. like, sure, like, let's give ourselves time to bake in it. But when you're at home and your children's friends are in rehab for self-harming and you're completely confused about whether sending your kid to school is even a good idea anymore. And they've seen films on unschooling. And I mean, if I could count the number of adults that have told my daughter when she says, I hate math, that like, don't worry about it, math sucks. And they hated math too. And as the parent who's trying to buy into the school and their mm -hmm. child needs to have some confidence that that is something that's important. There's no shared philosophy on how to even be with that with a child. It makes you want to adopt something else that makes a little more sense or seems to be working for somebody else and take the other people around you and, you know, proselytize something else that just might get you out of a little bit of the desperation and a little bit of the feeling of like, we don't have much time because we're inundated with that feeling. Our children are inundated with the feeling that, you know, the temperature is rising and I mean, last time I was at Orphan Wisdom School, I had to ask the people that I was sharing my room with, like, are we all in agreement that the world is ending? Because I'm just not really sure. Like, is is this really the apocalypse? Um, what's happening? Because the way that everyone, not everyone, the way that the few people that I already knew that I came here with were talking, they had to really break it down for me. But, that, but the feeling that it, there's impending danger all the time, whether it's mm -hmm. from the environment or from people that, you know, you're a public figure. So I'm sure that you've gone through something over the pandemic with people commenting and deciding who you are based on who you talk to, based on what you say. Well, I've been through that same thing. So, you know, it makes me want to pull in my little octopus tentacles and, and you know, go find my loom and sheep <laughs> hypothetically, because it's like, what's, why am I even doing this? Especially if there's only, if there's only 15 years left in the world, then yeah, it really seems dumb to take to care about my daughter's math class. But if I'm going to take it upon myself to live in a way that somewhere, possibly sometime down the line, um, mm. might have some perfume of of interconnectedness or relatedness, then that's what I want to do. But I I don't want to make it sound like I'm better than all the scholars because I'm not. I'm I'm in the same. I'm in the same boat, but I understand what it feels like to feel like you're, you know, trying to put your, you're climbing a mud wall and, and mm. the mud's maybe wet and you're, you're sliding down it. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. You know, it does remind me of your passage here that you, I think maybe pre predated, I mean, the first conversations, but I understand you, you did speak, you, you did a little series from folks in different 
aspects of the vaccines. And we don't have to talk about vaccines at all, but you said this point here in the book. I was interested in how we got to the point with so little common ground, where a civil conversation was so difficult to have, even between people with whom I used to share so many common values. And it makes me think as well, this to, to reckon one has to be able to, yeah, to agree on what the, what the what's happening to some fashion. Uh, and I feel like that's become so difficult um, for, I mean, many reasons, but one, Steve, you've spoken at length in different contexts around uh, this, this, this truth, I suppose, or, or this presence of a we, like is, is the presence of a, some kind of we amongst people necessary in which to finally come to some, some ground together? Because I feel like that's the thing that is most fugitive these days is, uh, even coming to know who is willing to, uh, be willing to come to the same ground as you, um, you know, without needing to oppose or agree. So how does one approach even that uh, in order to to reckon or even to reconcile, which was something obviously that came up. And the requirement, of course, is to concile, to, to meet first before you can meet again. Well, I felt like I needed to, instead of be abstract about things, I needed to get a little bit concrete about things. So in that project you're referring to where I interviewed, I might've interviewed five or six people. I really asked people flat out, are you vaccinated? because I felt like what was happening was everyone was being in the universal abstract. And if I would say certain things, people would just take whatever I said and make it mean the thing that they wanted it to mean. Hmm. And could I say, for instance, that I personally am vaccinated and my daughter got vaccinated. She got vaccinated before I did, which was really weird for me because there's a lot of things I would absolutely say no to her about like certain vaccines, for example, but in this case, I felt like she she knew really what she wanted. And so anyhow, I got vaccinated. She's vaccinated. And then people started saying, like, well, then you're pro-authority because you're vaccinated. And, you know, I'm a home birth advocate. I had a home birth. I've, I deal with the medical system all the time. I would I'm absolutely suspicious, beyond suspicious, Um completely devastated by the impacts of big pharma, but I had to do the calculus that hopefully many people were doing, but instead of sometimes doing that difficult calculus, a lot of people opted out of the difficulty and into sort of an alternate version of facts and reality where you don't have to, where it's science versus nature, uh, technology versus nature and all kinds of um, fracturing that's, that's, does, doesn't have a foundation and, and doesn't have, you know, a lot of people said to me, well, I'm just doing what my body tells me to do. And I really had to look at that because I'm a somatic practitioner that's telling people how to interpret what their body's mm. telling them, but their body telling them to or not to take or not take the vaccine is like a lot different than looking at a very large picture, multi-factor picture. Uh, and that includes so many, and so many different things. And so for me personally, I felt like it was important rather than staying in the abstract. And of course, many people wrote me and said they were completely disillusioned by me. I'm not who they think I am. Um, I don't represent what they thought I was because of that choice. I also have like close friends who I would call community who I eat with every week. And um, one of them was quitting his job because his job was making vaccines mandatory. And the other one 
you know, I mean, so we were pretty much almost as opposite as could be in terms of what we thought the meaning of it was. But what we had was grief together. What we had was the ability to to talk about it, but also to know when talking about it was too much and that we were trying to impose our viewpoints on each other rather than be heartbroken about it together and um, and be willing to see that in this case, those friends are ones who have, if we're going to talk about solutions, which is not the greatest word, but they have lives that represent what I consider to be very interconnected and interdependent with skills that I personally don't have in my own toolkit yet. So I learned so much from them. And so just to be able to continue um, being physically together, I mean, that had a lot to do with it. We lived in the same place and we could actually go to each other's houses every week and be together. And so in this period of time, that really wasn't the case for so many relationships. And so they happened out in idea land and out in philosophy land and out in the land where you can abstract someone into being the straw man that you disagree with that's easier to relate to than the human that has so many different parts of themselves that are that's influencing why they're making the choices they're making mm -hmm. that said i also had friends that didn't friendships that didn't make it through mm -hmm. oh steve is there anything you wanted to add to that only that i don't think the notion of we I don't think it's best understood as how people feel about each other. Mm -hmm. I think we, the, con the, the, the accomplishment, which is we, derives from the willingness that people might have to proceed as if certain things are so, or at least needing of us. So, mm -hmm. so the, it's the work that you find the capacity to be we together in. You don't establish that person and go look for a, a convivial enterprise that doesn't challenge anything. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, you know, I feel like the, at least in their closing remarks too, in the book, that there's this uh, wondering about citizenship. Hmm. Um, and in particular, yeah, Kimberly, you also write, uh, it was clear that an individual healing path and this is speaking to your own work, I think also the, the, the I mean, you, I think you speak in the beginning, this idea you're in the sort of white wellness world or have been in there. And that there, I would say there is this undercurrent, um, I would call it belief in change, that individual change automatically leads to collective change, right? It's sort of an unquestioned assumption. The more I work on myself, the more that, you know, uh, things will get better. And you say here, it was clear that an individual healing path did not de facto turn someone towards the collective good and towards citizenry. Um, and so that I think is worth spending a bit of time on that. What that's a kind of reckoning into itself, right? It's, it's sort of a willingness to question sort of the fundament of that whole approach of individual betterment automatically like a continuum, which, you know, Steve, in, in the last school we did, of course, you spoke so much about eclipses, right? And uh, there was this recognition that certain things that are assumed to be a continuum are actually not, they're an eclipsing and in fact, an obscuring of uh, what might be. And so I saw a relation between these things that this idea of the personal growth automatically leads to something. Eclipses, it, it doesn't uh, lead to the collective good on its own. And so, yeah, I wonder if you might speak to that. Me first? Oh, I just got a shorty. You're the eclipse guy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 
Um, I don't think, uh, sorry, I lost it. I lost the thread of the first part of your question. Could you just say mm. it again? Some part of it? Sure. Just the sense that the, the idea that the personal growth, let's say automatically okay. leads to collective good. Right. right. I think that the, the assumption that underlies that is the notion that all the collective, not my favorite word, that what a community or a village is, is the sum total of what the individuals are. This is a completely misapprehended um, notion that is very short on an understanding of alchemy. Mm. The alchemical uh, confabulation, which is a community, is something that the sum of the individuals can't begin to approach. No, it, it converts the willingness of people to, uh, to congregate into something they have to contend with as well as something they can do. They have to find some way to inhabit the thing that they've called into being. So you don't do that with a collection of individuals. You do it with the understanding that that the lion's share of your individuality is uh, not particularly called upon or even required by the community that you seek. Hmm. Kimberly, what about you? say there well that it seemed like what you were talking about is like this whole idea that we are a macro microcosm of the macrocosm and so the world entirely lives in me and then whatever happens in me i exchange into the world and that that's good enough uh that that's you know, that's kind of like the best, that's the best we can do, you know, like you're, you're hurting so much. So like the best that you could do is um, in my case, you know, uh, regulate your nervous system because you regulate your nervous system, then, you know, you're going to be automatically regulating other people's nervous systems. Mm. And it's not entirely untrue. There is part of a, a truth to that. But for me, it was, I mean, it, it really just comes down to personal work or culture work is really what it boils down to. It's like if I can't, I don't want to discredit some of the things that I think do work within what I have done. But at the same time, it's just, it's like, it's like you're standing on one floor of the house and then you find out you're, you need to be on another floor of the house. It, it just like, it's the, the foundation of it is different. And so what I've been seeing and what I've, you know, I was, I'm so disheartened. I mean, disheartened is like an understatement. I, I'm like disgusted by the trauma world. I'm disgusted by the, I mean, talk about performative and it all rely. It, it's the, 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 the currency of the whole thing is, is not just suffering, but it's like amplification of suffering and exaltation of personal circumstances. I do think that, from a gendered perspective, oftentimes for women to believe that what happens, you know, that our voices matter and that what happens to us within certain contexts like medicine matters and be able to use our voice, there is something that needs to happen in terms of um, coalescence of energy that's a little bit different. Um, I think for women, we're, we, we have an easier time being in the underworld in general and uh, oftentimes don't exactly know how to be traversing the worlds as well. But I just, I just kept 
coming back to, you know, having to give people a different level of orientation because the, the temptation is that we just keep going along with these solutions, which we, we have, which right now is basically one-on-one -on -one therapy. If you have, if you're sitting in a group of people and someone says, so-and-so is having a hard time, the first thing they're going to say is, are they in therapy or mm -hmm. do, or, oh, they're taking psych meds. Are they going to therapy too? You can't just take the meds without the therapy. And that, I mean, it just can't be, it can't, because it, if everyone is suffering so much, which from the looks of it for me is that's really not that big of an overstatement. Either people are completely anesthetized and frozen. And so kind of like robotic and, and continuing on with something or sick in, in all of the different kinds of ways that we can be sick, then one-on-one -on -one therapy just cannot be the solution. It just, it just even, I know we're not in all, only rational land, but even from rational land, there's not enough people. We can't train enough people to be working one-on-one -on -one with everybody. And for me, that's been the question to myself over and over is like, what is more upstream than, than where I'm at? Because if this, if this, problem that I'm contending with, which in my case is, you know, just rampant sexual abuse, but not even, I mean, yes, abuse, but also just the gray area that is relating right now, mm -hmm. that then so easily gets put into, you know, who is the predator and who is the prey and who is the perpetrator and who is the victim mm -hmm. with absolutely no grace for the fact that Everyone, and you know, I this is a bullshit statistic, but like for me, I always say, you know, there's just like 10% of people that are just like they're really messed up. But the nine other 90% are they might not be trying to do their best, but they're living in this soup of this gray area where nobody knows the rules anymore. Nobody knows we don't have etiquette, we don't have expectations, we have these paper-thin ideas of equality and justice and inclusion with no experience underneath it. So it's not that I don't work one-on-one -on -one with anyone anymore. And it's not that I don't think that uh, some of the things are import important. Many of them are important. It's just that my sense of urgency and legacy lead me to want to do something that is beyond a one-on-one -on -one thing. And prior to this, I guess I could say that I wasn't 100% sure about the microcosm, macrocosm, but I was just leaning against it. Because that's what I, that's what I, that was the underpinnings of all of my yoga practice and all of the meditation practice. And I don't think I could really live with myself as somebody who, you know, I have an undergrad degree in social policy who cares about systems and structures and society. I don't think I could have like moved too far forward if I really said to myself, well, this arrangement doesn't, it's not good enough. And it, and it wasn't good enough at certain times and I, and I changed paths, but now it's a whole other level because the measure of quote unquote success has just been completely changed. Hmm. You know, when, as you spoke there, that, uh, that sort of reckoning, uh, with, as you said, the, the what's upstream of, of what feels like maybe the, the flood, you know, that's, that's gaining. And I'm hearing shades, I believe, Steve, of, of your story as well. When you back 
early days did counseling, I understand, or in some fashion, and that, and that you had that, it might've been in Money and the Soul's Desires, but you said something along the lines of, I, you know, I realized uh, I was just turning people back to the culture, to an insane culture, and um, in many ways, perhaps led to the seeds of the Orphan Wisdom School, right, as a wondering of what else might be done. Um, I think it's important, because you still do talk to people one-on-one sometimes. It's just, you just don't have an office where you do it. Well, <laughs> yes, that's that. Architecturally, you're right, but uh, I think I think what the encounters that I'm willing to have are predicated on an understanding that we're not engaged in a process. Generally speaking, I I wouldn't do it twice with most people. Okay. Yeah. Why? Well, because I'm I, the chronicity of the thing is its own seduction. Okay. Um, that's just the part that I can't sign up for. Mm-hmm. So I, it's kind of all or nothing now. And you, you could say, and properly so, hey, what if a lot of people can't do that because they're in the soup and, and, and they, can't, they can't hit the mark? And I, and I would say, well, maybe they can't hit the mark for 40 minutes. But for 20 minutes or whatever it is, maybe it's available. Mm-hmm. And you, you take your chances and you don't count on tomorrow. So apropos of your observation, is, is it getting worse or where are we in the, in the ticker, you know, how close to midnight are we and so on? Well, I'm proceeding as if it's a given that we've seen more of this arrangement than we're likely to see. We've, we ought not to count on too much, too much more, you know, and I'm not, mm. this doesn't alarm me to say it. And I hope it's, there's no alarm, certainly none intended, but um, this is akin to the difference between you find out you're going to die. What's that called? Well, that's called life. <laughs> it, was a, it was always true. But you find out you're dying. This means something else. This means that something should change as a consequence of the fact your, t- your tomorrows are clearly limited in a way that was lost upon you before now. Mm. And the, the great act is the act of translating. That's the circumstance I think I'm in. So when I agree to see people in a, in a sort of consulting capacity, basically it's with that predicate in the background, that this is it, and we ought not to count on tomorrow. And I don't think we're serving our little lives much by imagining that if we save some for tomorrow, there'll be a tomorrow where we can visit what we saved. Mm-hmm. So it makes me a bit of an extreme character, I suppose, just... just um, in terms of I, maybe how that comes across, but I'm just an urgent character with no, with with sometimes with a severity that is a consequence of brevity, not a consequence of uh, desperation. Just brevity. I just don't want to go on forever and ever. I don't want to indulge. The pro- I'm there's. I finally found it. I'm not interested in the process of people going through incremental change and endless reflection upon it. There. Mm. I'm just. I don't think I've ever said this out loud before. I'm just too old for that shit. <laughs> I mean, I don't have a lot of time and I, it's not what I want to do with it. Mm. I'm just not a process guy. <laughs> well, I think there's something about, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that comment about process, but there's something about the assumption that in a one-on-one interaction, what we're doing is attachment repair and attachment 
to basically one person or two people. And that is, you know, a study, those studies are from the 40s, from the strange situation and attachment theory. But what we're saying, even that is based on a nuclear family structure. And it, mm-hmm. and, and that's a consequence of something else that's not here that we're all remembering and somehow kind of starving for. And, and that's just, that starvation is getting distorted in all kinds of things. So I can see that, I mean, I'm not a big, I don't like to do serial one-on-one work either, but I always thought that was kind of my problem because I just don't like, I don't like to be, I like to, I like, I like the radical intervention, I guess. I like being the one to be there and identify something and do something about it and then move on and let the person do with it what they need to do with it. Um, And it just seems to be one of those things that, you know, even, even as Stephen and I were in uh, Ottawa on Tuesday and one of the last questions was, you know, is, are things really that bad? And is this just not what happens? It's just every generation, you know, leaves something. And and it was my first question, the first time I ever spoke to Stephen Jenkinson, because I saw this phrase, troubled times. Yeah. And I'm not yeah. from an, uh, I know some, for some people, troubled times and end times is really heavy because they come from fundamentalist backgrounds, and I don't. So I didn't have any experience with this phrase. And that is exactly where my mindset went, which is like, well, is it really that bad? I mean, doesn't everybody always think that their kids aren't really, you know, they're letting them down or, you know, people lived through wars before and all of the ways of rationalizing and, and assuming the inevitability of being in the place that we're in now. Hmm. You have this phrase in the end of the book too, which um, just struck me is, you know, Steve is also can be known sometimes as the, maybe not anti-hope, but <laughs> hope-free, certainly. But you have this phrase here, it says, you say, I can live without hope, but I can't live without possibility. <laughs> and so what something in that connects, I think, to what you're saying, though, this sense of, well, because if it is so bad as it is, then it's hopeless. I mean, it's kind of, for me, what I hear in the backstory for folks that are like, wait, what? Grappling with that. And here you say, I've never heard this phrase quite like this, though, too. It's, I don't know if it deeks hope and just kind of Re- gives it a new dress, or if it's something else entirely. But I wonder if you might speak to that. I can't live without possibility. I think your question is really interesting. I think Stephen Jenkinson's wondering the same thing, and I'm also wondering the same thing. Um, at the time that I wrote that, so I wrote that in March of this year. I, I mean, again, we can't abstract the fact that there's a lot of people that are really in bad shape right now, like, you know, can't go to work, um, don't want to go to work, have given up on anything really making any kind of a difference at all. Um, Maybe are really sick for some reason. And I was really asking myself like, well, of all of the, of all the things that I have to do, because as I write in the piece, like I don't have small children to take care of. I don't have, you know, crops to, to actually engage with in my hands. My, my life to this point was really spent on my physic. I'm as a dancer and, you know, yoga teacher and on my physicality. And I, 
really lamenting not having skills that I would have already put into place in certain ways and learnings that I didn't have. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm deeper in with hope and, and hope free and understanding because of the chronology of things and how hope is always in the future. And it's always about something next. Uh, but I was really trying to figure out, well, like what's really, what's the, I was in an existential straitjacket. Like, well, what do I even do? I don't even, I, I mean, writing that piece was so hard for me for so many different reasons. One mm -hmm. of them being that I've written books that got turned into quote unquote guides. I didn't set out to read, write a book that was a guide, but in both cases, they ended up being guides. And that's what the publisher, you know, the guide, the word guide had to be in the title of the fourth trimester. And it, they're very good books. I, I actually, I'm very proud of each of those books. Nevertheless, writing in this way was something completely different. It was really exciting, but it was also terrifying because I, I was and still am. I think one of the questions I had that didn't make it in the book is like, can an invertebrate be a scribe? Like if you've if you've <laughs> taken off all of your shell, can you still have a pen? And like to what? I I've questioned everything. Like what what is the good of putting out one more thing? What is the good of of writing something? The the basis of the situation is I don't know. I'm not firmly planted in another place. I didn't leave one world and end up in another. And now I've got it taken care of, and I'm completely without any kind of questions about how I move forward in the world. I'm doing complicated calculus all the time of, you know, people that work for me, um, my daughter who I'm exclusively responsible for the end of the last orphan wisdom school, sort of like the, the, the culminating moment was about surplus and kind of like what surplus does to us. And it's like, I've been working so hard for the last four years for surplus to have a savings account to have money for my daughter to go to college. And it and it had taken its toll on me, but it was something that at, at least at that time I felt was like a good idea to do. And so, you know, so many, um, to say that I, be, I don't, I can give up hope, but I can't give up possibility to me is the thing that I think musicians sometimes have in spades, which is just a soul thrust of something that's living through you, that's pushing you forward. And at that time, I didn't, I didn't know where that was. And so for me, it had to be the possibility was the, um, what I came up with. Mm. Thank you. I hear in your words too, the, the echoes of good Mr. Cohen's, uh, one wild bouquet, you know, being willing to, to thrust it up, uh, despite it all, um, now we have a few more minutes left, and I'd just love to actually uh, offer this Ian, passage. Ian, excuse me. Excuse me. Sir. Yeah, yeah, Steve. Let's do justice to the reference, okay? Okay. Okay. Let's do it. It goes like this. I'm sentimental, hmm. if you know what I mean. I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. And I'm neither left nor right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in this hopeless little screen. But I'm stubborn like those garbage bags that time, time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. Mm. That's, the full, that's the fullness of what you were remembering there. <laughs> I thought he, was, he deserved you, it. Yeah, yes. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Um, yeah. Okay. So here's uh, just to send us off then. Uh, this passage that I feel I was touched by it. Um, 
and how this is in Steve's words in the closing remarks of the book. And I thought maybe I'd offer that. And then uh, just a few closing words, whatever might stir from from hearing it now uh, read back to you uh, both. Uh, but Steve says, I'm at it here again anyway, one more time with feeling just before the lights go down. This time, though, somebody's on the other side of me tangling with these dark days. There's you and there's your child. And there's the oh my goodness of it all piling up by the side of the road. You are an ordinary citizen, a citizen citizen in a weaponized time. And so am I. What do we do? What do we tell the kids? What will we mean to them in 2030? And that's something that is is just echoing, it's reverberating for me and, and throughout this work and and that question, what do we mean? What, what might what might we mean by the way we act now? I think is is present, and so I wonder as we send off uh, our, our time today, what might you offer and speak to that? Well, I'll go first. Um, you know, anybody can put a question on a mark on the end of a declaration and pretend it's a question. Hmm. Um, but I hope those aren't pretend questions. I think they're legitimate, authentic, and uh, bordering on dangerous questions. And I don't know what the answer is. They're not rhetorical, I should say. I don't know what the answer is, especially to that last one. Mm -hmm. Although I'm getting a pretty good idea that there's a certain degree of foreclosure that's in the works now. That we don't, there's not a lot of wiggle room for either my generation or Kimberly's in terms of what we collectively will mean to people who are 14 or 16 years old now in eight years from now, when they're not teenagers, when they're not the center of the retail universe as they currently are, when they're unceremoniously dumped on the refuse pile of, of uh, former peak consumers and things of that kind. And, and if th things become you know, worse than they are, which is not an if really, then the question becomes, did you know what was happening? Hmm. And what did you do? And I think the more desperate question is the first one, to be honest. Did you know what was happening? Tell me you didn't, because then I can live with how things have come to be as they are. That by virtue of you being boxed out of the information stream you didn't really know and that accounts for why things have gone as they've gone mm -hmm. that's a more livable circumstance than people of my age or kimberly's age looking them square in the eye and saying oh yeah we knew mm. kimberly what might you say to that 2030 doesn't seem very long from now and, you know, there's a line in the piece that I wrote at the end, which we called those end pieces, blessings. Um, and I said, you know, I, I thought we were in purgatory and you think we're in hell. And that date 2030 to me just seems really soon. Uh, so. Mm. I, I agree it's soon. And I think our time frame is not as elastic as we imagine. Mm. Yeah. But of course, 2030 
I may not even be here at 2030. So of course, mm. it sounds a little more um, like the curtains falling, rather than just another year on the old odometer of life. Mm. Yeah. Mm. For which I make no apology, by the way. Mm. At this stage of the game, a sense of urgency seems called for. So that's what you hear. Well, thank you both for encountering me here in this conversation and for encountering each other in Reckoning, which um, I understand is most available through Orphan Wisdom. If folks want to get themselves a copy of the book. Uh, Only and, and available through Orphan Wisdom. Okay, exclusively <laughs> available. Uh, and if people want to be encountered uh, by this book, as I have been, and maybe you've been here today, uh, thank you both for taking the time out of the school as well to come do this. Um, and uh, I wish you um, sturdy wondering in the, uh, the rest of the days to come. Thanks. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crow's Nest. Please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. To learn more about the School of Mythopoetics and attend our upcoming events, visit schoolofmythopoetics.com. Thank you.